This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good afternoon and welcome. My name is Mary Camario. I am professor of the Graduate School in the College of Environmental Design and chair of the Hitchcock Professorship Committee. We are pleased, along with the Graduate Council, to present Paul Goldberger, this year's speaker in the Charles M. and Martha Hitchcock Lecture Series. As a condition of this bequest, we are obligated and very happy to tell you how the endowment came to UC Berkeley. It's a story that exemplifies the many ways in which the campus is linked to the history of California and to the Bay Area. Dr. Charles Hitchcock, a physician for the Army, came to San Francisco during the gold rush, where he opened a thriving practice. In 1885, Charles established a professorship here at Berkeley as an expression of his long-held interest in education. His daughter, Lily Hitchcock Coit, still treasured in San Francisco for her colorful personality as well as her generosity, greatly expanded her father's original gift to establish a professorship at UC Berkeley, making it possible for us to present this series of lectures. The Hitchcock Fund has become one of the most cherished endowments of the University of California, recognizing the highest distinction of scholarly thought and achievement. Thank you, Lily and Charles, And now a few words about Paul Goldberger. Paul Goldberger holds the Joseph Urban Chair in Design and Architecture at the New School located in New York City. He is a contributing editor to Vanity Fair and has been called the leading figure in architectural criticism by the Huffington Post. Until 2011, he wrote the popular Skyline column for The New Yorker and served as the magazine's architectural critic. He began his career in journalism at the New York Times, where he won the Pulitzer Prize for Distinguished Criticism in 1984. Goldberger's first lecture will be an inquiry as to whether cities are becoming more and more the same, and why, and what the implications for this are. The second lecture will discuss the question of whether, or even if, the premise of the first lecture is true. Cities, nevertheless, remain catalysts for creativity and why. A prolific writer, Goldberger just completed a biography of Frank Gehry to be published by Alfred K. Knopf this coming September titled Building Art, The Life and Work of Frank Gehry. He has many other books. Um, Most recent meaning is Why Architecture Matters, but I am not going to read you this entire list. Um, We want to hear him, not me. Um, He has, however, chronicled the process of rebuilding ground Zero, Up from Zero, Politics, Architecture, and the Rebuilding of New York, which was published in New York in 2004 and was named a New York Times notable book. He was educated at Yale University and has received honorary doctorates from Pratt Institute, the University of Miami, Kenyon College, and the College of Creative Studies, and the New York School of Interior Design. He is a former dean of Parsons School of Design, a division of the New School, and has taught at Yale and the Graduate School of Journalism at UC Berkeley. He is a frequent lecturer on architecture, design, historic preservation, and cities, often appearing in film and television. 
He served as an architectural advisor to major cultural and educational institutions. He has received many awards, I will only name two, the Medal of the American Institute of Architects and the Medal of Honor of the New York Landmarks Preservation Foundation. Please join me in welcoming Paul Goldberger to Berkeley. Thank you very much, Mary. This is the most wonderful old Berkeley room, I have to say, actually. It's a great pleasure and an even greater honor to be here and to join this extraordinary series of Hitchcock professors who've come to Berkeley over the last hundred years. For all that we're invited to give of our knowledge, I suspect that most Hitchcock professors have received far more than they've given. And I know that that will be my case as well, so I'm especially appreciative of the invitation to be on this extraordinary campus again. Now, I'm going to talk this week, as you've heard, about cities, what they mean right now in our culture, and what we can make of them now in the early decades of the 21st century, about what cities are now and about what they ought to be. I should tell you now, right at the outset, that I've decided to make this talk something of a revolt against the thing that seems now all too often to define the modern lecture, which is PowerPoint. I'm going to do something that is rare in the realm of lectures, particularly in the realm of lectures that have some connection to architecture and architectural history, which is to talk without images. It's a little bit, I know, like... Uh, walking a tightrope without a net, but I will try it. Um, I'm doing it because I think a lot of the things I want to talk about are familiar to most of you. I'll talk a lot about San Francisco and the Bay Area, both today and tomorrow, and also because I'd like to talk a fair amount about ideas, and I think that's more important than showing you a parade of images. I think you have enough images in your head already to understand where I'll be going over the next few minutes. And the other reason I've decided to steer clear of PowerPoint is because I'm not interested in using it to throw data at you. We're deluged with data today. And while much of it is useful, and some of it even has the added benefit of being true, I don't think the points I want to make are best explained by a cascade of numbers. Now, today's talk is entitled, The Generic City. Can, a 20, can the 21st century ever build special places? A question that I hope is not entirely rhetorical. Tomorrow, I'll talk about the creative city, why cities remain the catalysts of creativity. And I recognize that there might seem to be a bit of a contradiction between these two topics. Obviously, the two talks were conceived as a pair, but it would be a mistake to think of the first as pessimistic, intended to suggest that the city today is nothing but a generic, banal place, the victim of the global monoculture, and that the talk I'll give tomorrow is optimistic, intended to make the point that everything is fine after all, because good things still happen in these dreary places. It's not nearly so simple as that. And I'm not sure in the end that it wouldn't be more accurate to say that today and tomorrow I'll be looking at the same subject 
through slightly different lenses and showing how it is possible to look at the contemporary city and come to very different conclusions about what it is, how it functions, and what it means for our culture. But that's getting ahead of the story. Let me start by going back 40 or 50 years to the cities of the 1960s and 1970s, when in the, in the United States and in much of the rest of the world, if you did a free association test with the word urban, the answer you would probably come up with most often would be crisis, or problem, or challenge. The urban crisis was a given. Cities were harsh, dirty, and dangerous. And in this country, at least, if you could afford to live somewhere else, you quite often did. The Asian cities that now loom so large were large, but they did not loom. They had very little to do with the global economy, and they were technologically backward. The major cities on the world stage were European and American, for the most part, and a great many of them were a mess. I began my own professional life in New York in the 1970s, and when I talk about it, I realize that the city I remember from my 20s is as disconnected from the reality of what students know today as the world of the Depression that my parents and grandparents talked about was disconnected from the reality that I knew. I don't know that New York in the 1970s was as truly horrific as it was made out to be in the various movies of the age, like Taxi Driver and The Taking of Pelham 123, but it wasn't pretty. It was dirty and ill-kempt. The subway, though it wasn't really too dangerous to ride in, was dirty and full of graffiti and various unsavory types, especially at night, and it had a weird tendency to stop between stations mysteriously, as if the equipment had broken down and there was neither, either no announcement of what the problem was or a message over a malfunctioning PA system that sounded sort of like... <laughs> now, in those days, I worked at the New York Times, which was located, logically enough, at Times Square, which was not the prettified, somewhat Disneyfied tourist environment it is now. It was more of an amalgam of sleazy movie theaters, many pornographic, striptease joints, massage parlors, pickpockets, muggers, you name it, all wrapped in a dazzling array of lights and signs. I remember from time to time seeing the occasional tourist wandering around, dazed and confused, and wanting, wishing I could say to them, can't I take you to the Metropolitan Museum, the Museum of Modern Art, somewhere else so you don't think this is all there is to New York? You really did feel that the public realm was in disarray, that no one was in charge, or that the people who were nominally in charge had no power to fix what was broken, that even the best of the public officials seemed rather hapless, bewildered by the challenges they faced. We seemed unable to keep Central Park clean and safe, let alone the subway system. And while there were occasional extravaganzas that distracted everyone from the immediate problems at hand, such as the famous bee-ins in Central Park that attracted thousands often to protest the Vietnam War. Remember, this was the 1960s. These events, inspiring though they were, only caused Frederick Law Olmsted's astonishingly great work of landscape to deteriorate further 
because nobody was putting any money into maintenance, and the park, like everything else, was falling apart. Large corporations wanted none of this, and dozens of them moved their headquarters out of the city. Most often, as the great urbanologist William H. White discovered, to a suburban location in Connecticut or Westchester County or New Jersey that just happened to be within a few miles of where the chief executive lived. Now there, I admit, is a piece of data that was quite useful to have turned up. The city seemed to be losing not only its middle class, which had always struggled somewhat under urban pressures, but its upper class, the people who in past generations had sailed blithely over everything and everyone else. It was terrifyingly easy to buy real estate because nobody wanted it. You could buy great apartments on Fifth Avenue facing Central Park for $100,000, for even less, a sum that today in New York won't buy you a one-room studio apartment in a marginal neighborhood. If things were happening anywhere, it was in places like Houston, where there was still plenty of money in a fundamentally suburban corporate culture that had only minimal interest in what we might call, or would come to call later, a culture of urbanism, a culture of cities. Let me talk for a moment about that culture, which was hardly limited to Houston. It was really the American culture, and it was a culture whose fundamental characteristic, at least so far as urbanism was concerned, was that it valued the private realm over the public realm. The public realm, such as it was, was disdained, distrusted, or ignored. I'm not sure it was ever even really understood, because when the public realm was really functioning in the great days of American urbanism, the decades before World War II, it was just a natural thing that people took for granted, like the air you breathed and the water you drank. You didn't think you were experiencing the public realm when you walked down Main Street and went shopping, or when you took a stroll in the park. These were just the natural things that you did. And I don't think there was much consciousness of how important it was, because it seemed like such a natural part of life, not just in a big city, but in a small town or village, where the parks and village squares and sidewalks lined with stores were as much a part of life as the schools and the churches and the houses. But by the 1950s, we'd, stop, we'd, be, we'd begun to stop investing in this. We weren't conscious of how much the public realm meant, how it was really the most important thing the city could possibly symbolize, had always symbolized, which is the idea of common ground, the notion that the, that the city expresses in physical form the commonweal, and that the public realm stands for the way in which our diverse, complex society can come together, not by papering over our differences, but by acknowledging them, and by so doing, helping us to transcend them. These are always our aspirations, and it is in the nature of the city to facilitate them by privileging public space over private space. But come the 1960s and 1970s, as with Central Park, so was it through much of the United States. We couldn't even take care of the public realm we had 
let alone build any more of it. We didn't seem to want to build more of it. That's my real point, that society seemed to have given up on caring about the notion of public space, the idea of the commonweal as being represented by our common public realm. The suburbs and the automobile culture, of course, do the exact opposite of this. They privilege private space over public space. And while I do not mean to lay all of our urban issues at the foot of the automobile, there is no question that it has been a nearly constant enemy of cities. That there is something about the urban idea and something about the automobile that are in some fundamental way incompatible. When you make a city work well for the automobile, it almost invariably works less well for the pedestrian. The car is itself a form of public space, private space rather. Excuse me, the car is itself a form of private space. And when you are in it, you are disconnected from everything except that which you choose to connect yourself to, be it music, conversation, your smartphone, or as is increasingly the situation with children sitting in the back seat, television, all of which somehow seem to have the effect not only of disconnecting people in a car from the world around them, but also from each other. Now, I'm really not here to rant about the automobile, as I said, or about technology, but it is hard not to think that, so far as the meaning of urban space is concerned, technology does not always connect us as we like to think, in some ways, it separates us. Cars are private pods zipping around in public space, rendering it effectively private. But then again, people on telephones and listening to their iPods are in private space as well, disconnected from the people and the environment that is all around them. The automobile and, of course, the Airplane changed our sense of place and by making us mobile and less wedded to a single place than our ancestors were. But the technology of today goes that one better and allows us, wherever we may physically be, to function as if we were somewhere else. In effect, technology allows you to have a virtual presence anywhere, which is wonderful until you realize that this has the result, in some ways, of making you feel like you are less where you really are. And it makes all places seem more or less the same. You know, once your very telephone number was a kind of badge of place, a sign of where you were, you couldn't be reached unless you actually were in that place, on that piece of earth, connected to that telephone, that instrument that we now quaintly call a landline. It's increasingly common, I realize, for cell phone conversations to begin with the question, where are you? And for the answer, of course, to be anything from out by the pool to Madagascar. Now, I don't miss the age when phone charges were based on distance, but that did have the beneficial effect of at least reinforcing a sense that places were distinguishable from one another. Now, with your cell phone, calling across the street and calling from New York to California are precisely the same thing. They cost the same because to the phone, they are the same. 
Every place is just a node on a network. And so, increasingly, are we. That's my point. Before we even get into the question of whether all places are physically the same, the idea I've called the, the generic city, we can see that all places are equally accessible and that wherever we are, we are no longer rooted in that place in the way that we once were. We may be physically in one place, but we are now virtually anywhere and everywhere. Before we move on entirely from technology, I would like to come back for just one moment and make another point that is relevant to the larger question here and connects to the arguments that Dr. Richard Jackson at UCLA has been making for years, which is that the places in which people drive all the time are inherently unhealthy. If you need to walk, you will. And as a consequence, you are healthier. If you don't need to walk, you probably won't. Or at least you will walk a lot less, and you will be less healthy. Health, of course, correlates to many things, and not just this one. But Dr. Jackson has done a vital service to the world of architecture and planning in giving us another set of reasons for believing that the traditional, dense, pedestrian-oriented city is a good thing. Many architects and planners have believed this for a long time, and from time to time there has been other evidence about the benefits to the social fabric inherent in denser, pedestrian-oriented towns and villages, not to mention the benefits in terms of energy use and sustainability. But Dr. Jackson has shown us that the greatest sustainability we get from traditional cities is that we ourselves are sustained because we are healthier. There, I concede, is another instance in which some hard data is useful, even though I'm not focusing on quantifiable data this afternoon. I want instead to talk about the nature of place and about what gives a place its identity. Here in the Bay Area, that question is an easy one. It is the Bay itself, the natural landscape of the hills, the landmarks of San Francisco, the Golden Gate Bridge, the Bay Bridge, the tower on this campus, the Maybach buildings and the other classic buildings of Berkeley, just for a start. We could go on and on. No one has ever confused the Bay Area with any place else. And so, in a way, this is an odd place in which to be talking about this problem because it barely seems to be a problem here. But let's go down the peninsula a bit to Silicon Valley, to San Jose, to Mountain View and Menlo Park and Palo Alto. Stanford aside, sorry I mentioned that unmentionable thing. I, I should have thought this through a little more carefully. I apologize. <laughs> anyway, an, un, an, an unmentionable private university aside, it is a landscape that looks pretty much like other landscapes. Until recently, at least, when a new, whole new wave of building began, there wasn't much to tell you that this was the place in which the world was being remade, in which the technology of the 21st century was being developed and the great fortunes of our time made. What it was, for most of it, was a banal suburban landscape, a place that looked like other places, and, I should add, a place that depended almost entirely on the automobile.
Indeed, for a long time, the most notable thing about the appearance of Silicon Valley was how ordinary it was, how much it looked like every place else, or at least like every other collection of reasonably prosperous American suburbs. Yes, it had that campus and some handsome mountain scenery marking its western edge, but the rest of the place has always been made up of places that could have been almost anywhere, like the 101 freeway and the strip malls and the supermarkets and the car dealerships and motels and low-rise office parks. Even after a few people began doing unusual things in their garages and other people started inventing things in university laboratories and even after some of these turned into the beginnings of large corporations, even then, Silicon Valley didn't look very different from every place else. It was a landscape of freeways and strip malls. There was certainly nothing about it that told you that this was a place that had generated more wealth than anywhere else in our time, or more to the point, the place that seemed to demonstrate more creative imagination than any other place in our time. You could go so far as to say that at least for a while, a determined indifference to the physical world seemed an inherent part of the identity of Silicon Valley in the same way that you don't expect computer geeks to pay much attention to their wardrobes. It didn't seem odd that the valley towns had a dull anywhere USA veneer or that the biggest and most successful companies seemed to operate out of low-rise buildings that looked as if they'd been built off the Long Island Expressway to house insurance agencies. It wasn't just because most of them started out on a shoestring and took what space they could, progressing from a garage to random office space wherever they could find it. It was also because, Steve Jobs aside, most people in Silicon Valley didn't care much about what things looked like. Buildings were a kind of whatever, just like clothing which is why the first Silicon Valley structures were to architecture as the hoodie is to haberdashery. <laughs> All of this is now changing rapidly in a number of ways. There's a surge of interest in ambitious pieces of architecture now in Silicon Valley, driven partly by Steve Jobs' desire shortly before his death to create a home for Apple that would be as refined a work of design as Apple's products are. The new Apple headquarters by Norman Foster looks rather too much like an Apple product, in my view. I think it's an object more than a work of architecture, an iPod blown up to gargantuan scale. But that's another discussion for another day. Suffice it to say that Apple raised the bar, and Facebook followed commissioning Frank Gehry to design a new complex that has just been finished. And now Google is beginning work on a new headquarters designed by the Bjark Ingels Group, the Copenhagen architect, now resettled in New York, and Thomas Heatherwick, the London designer. These companies are now so large, and there is so much money connected to them, and more importantly, so much determination to play a conspicuous role in the culture that architecture inevitably had to enter the picture. The people whose job it is to make the virtual world for us had to acknowledge that they wanted a better presence in the physical world. How successful all of this will be remains to be seen, but it is surely making Silicon Valley far less 
than the generic, almost banal environment that it has been for so long. The other way in which this is changing is arguably more important, but I'll talk more about that tomorrow since it involves a profound change in the relationship between the valley and the city of San Francisco and says a lot about the role of the city as a creative engine. So I'll come back to Silicon Valley and to San Francisco tomorrow and look at their relationship from a very different standpoint, I think a more positive one. But for now, let's go to some other large cities, to ones that are not San Francisco, and talk for a moment about how they work at this moment in time. I think it's almost a truism to state that cities are more alike than they used to be. The experience of arrival into, a, into similar looking airports, the trip to the center of the city often takes you along similar freeways, past similar landscapes, and upon arrival in the center city, you see similar skyscrapers. You unpack your bags in a hotel that could be anywhere and it doesn't even have to be a tired Hilton or Marriott. It might even be a trendy W or Andaz and it is still the same or feels the same from city to city. You take a walk and grab a snack at the Shake Shack or you shop at J. Crew or Ralph Lauren or Williams Sonoma or whatever the same places you find at home. But it is not just the places that are increasingly the same. It is also all of us. We are more the same because we are less shaped by the culture of our individual places in which we live and more shaped by the culture of the world which we are exposed to at every moment thanks to technology. We must not underestimate the extent to which if places feel the same, it is because the people in them are more the same than they once were. It can be anywhere, as I said, before it amounts, in a sense, to being nowhere. Nowhere, that is, except in the virtual, any place, every place, that is the world of technology accessible to all of us. Now, every place is, to a greater or lesser extent, a product of its time. Cities built in the 18th century, at least in this country, had certain similarities as did cities built in the 19th and cities built in the 20th. I say that not to deny regional or cultural or geographical differences, but to suggest that time has always played some role in shaping urban identity. I'll say more about that in a minute, but I think that the factor of time will become ever more important as cultural and geographical influences become less important. They will become less important because every place is exposed to the same ones. The forces that made Paris different from London, that made Rome grow into a place different from Milan or Jerusalem or Istanbul or Tokyo, those forces no longer exist. Those seven places are now exposed to and, and shaped by similar forces as global culture continues to homogenize. This has been understood, if not always welcomed, as a byproduct of modernism for a long time. Marshall McLuhan spoke of the global village, although he said later that he did not envision the connections wrought by technology as reducing differences, as they appear to have done. In 1932, Henry Russell Hitchcock and Philip Johnson coined the term the international style 
to represent the austere, minimalist, modern architecture that they saw correctly was moving rapidly across the globe. They were, of course, celebrating its spread, not thinking about its consequences. Okay, we all know that globalization, which often means the increasing westernization of all places, has a staggering impact, and that in the face of this, it is become, becoming harder and harder for places to maintain a clear physical, not to say cultural, identity. What can we do about this? Let me bring our focus back to architecture by quoting from a recent blog posting by the architecture critic Vitold Rybczynski, who tried to tie this to the never-ending debate in the world of architecture about, and I apologize for using this ersatz word, starchitects, the celebrated architects who travel around the globe, dropping new buildings into cities and then moving on to the next. You know who I mean. Norman Foster, Renzo Piano, Zaha Hadid, Frank Gehry, Rem Koolhaas, Jean Nouvel are at the top of the list right now. Rybczynski said that such hype and quote, high-powered architects, diminish rather than help cities, largely because they don't understand the places in which they build. And he suggested that globe-trotting architects merely delivered the shapes that interested them with little concern for context. In the long, rise, in the long run, it's wiser to nurture local talent, he said, instead of starkitects, locatechs. But is this so? And if skylines around the world are looking too much the same, is this because the new and important buildings are done by the big names from far away and not by the locals? I'm actually more inclined to think that the opposite is true, that the, the distinguishing new buildings in many cities are the very ones that were done by outsiders. Cesar Pelli's Petronas Towers in Malaysia, Cone Pedersen Fox's Shanghai World Center in Shanghai, and Mori Tower in Tokyo, Jean Nouvel's Torre Agbar in Barcelona, Frank Gehry's 8 Spruce Street Tower in New York, and Renzo Piano's Shard in London. No, they're not all great, but they're distinctive and they help give their cities skylines that push back against the forces of sameness, the tendencies toward the generic. In Tokyo, Kajima Design, an enormous design and construction firm that is as local as you can get, designed NTT Dokomo Yoyogi Building, the eighth tallest building in Japan, and a conspicuous element on the skyline to look like a knockoff of the Empire State Building. So much for the natives having an innate feel for the DNA of a particular place. I'll take the work of the carpetbagger over that kind of local any day. Even taller than the NTT is the new Tornamon Hills Tower, designed by another Japanese mega firm, Nihon Sekai, and it looks a lot like the angled, slightly sculpted glass towers that you see in almost every city in the United States. I don't see much that is inherently Tokyo-esque in either of these skyscrapers. And I've been talking only about skyscrapers, the buildings that define the skyline. Museums, civic centers, concert halls, bridges, libraries, opera houses all give cities part of their identity as well, and 
Many are the ones that succeed best and make places feel special. We're not designed by local architects either, but by architects who were hired because it was thought that they could bring more imagination and a sense of freshness to the problem. And often enough, they have. One of the best new buildings I saw last summer was the expansion of the Clark Art Institute in Williamstown, Massachusetts by the Japanese architect Tadao Ando, who was about as un-Berkshire's as you could get. Everybody knows how successful Frank Gehry's Guggenheim Museum in Bilbao, Spain is, but I'm mystified as to why Vitold Rybczynski felt compelled to say in that piece I was quoting that Gehry's Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles is superior to it, and I quote, because Gehry knows and understands Los Angeles better than Bilbao. I admire both buildings, but if you ask me, Bilbao is the one that actually shows a more inventive understanding and subtle connection to its urban context than Gary's concert hall in his home city. By the same token, is Norman Foster's round gherkin skyscraper really a better addition to London than his Hearst Tower in New York? Because Foster, again I quote, exhibits a surer touch on his home ground. Foster actually hasn't lived in London in more than a decade, though his firm is based there. For many years, he's lived part-time in New York and part-time in Switzerland, and his building in midtown Manhattan possesses a swagger that makes it, to my mind, very much in character with its place. But to Rybczynski, the Hearst Tower is not New York enough because its sculptural shape stopped abruptly on the 46th floor to give way to a flat top. I bow to no one in my love of the crowns of the Chrysler Building or the Woolworth Building or the Empire State Building, but I hardly see how that means that the flat-topped Seagram Building by Mies van der Rohe of Chicago or the CBS Building by Eero Saarinen, then of Bloomfield Hills, Michigan, were inappropriate to New York. Iconic structures confer a sense of identity on a city at least as much as they reflect that identity. That's where the issue of urban identity gets interesting in my mind, if not a little perplexing. By that I mean there was nothing particularly Parisian about the Eiffel Tower until it was built. And now, of course, for much of the world, for all of us in this room, surely it defines Paris. What made it Parisian? Certainly not its height, since Paris, either then or now, was not known as a city of tall structures. Yes, Gustave Eiffel was a great engineer, and there was a tradition of advanced engineering in France, but France was not unique in this regard. The fact that the tower combines engineering, brill engineering brilliance with a lyrical beauty, and that this is particularly Parisian? Maybe, but you could say the same thing about Eero Saarinen's St. Louis Arch, or the CNN, CN television tower in Toronto, each of which has made its form symbolic of its city, and by doing so has rescued the skylines of those cities from ordinariness. If the lyricism of the Eiffel Tower made it right for Paris, what is there about the graceful curves of the St. Louis Arch that speaks to something in the nature of St. Louis? Nothing. 
That's my point. We conferred the St. Louisness, so to speak, on it later, which is how this process almost always works. Surely the quirky Transamerica Pyramid by William Pereira now is identifiable a part of the San Francisco skyline as the towers or the of the bridges was not inherently San Franciscan. But it come to be identified with the city, perhaps only because the very quirkiness that made critics dislike it at first has made it memorable over the years and the, as the association with the city has grown and developed. Now, of course, so many huge skyscrapers have been built that Transamerica, which once seemed to punctuate the skyline, is now barely visible within it. But again, the point is that there was not much about this building that automatically made it right for San Francisco. Over time, it has become so. By the same token, I would even venture to say that the only thing that made the Empire State Building feel like it belonged in the New York of 1931 was its height. The Empire State's magnificent profile, the thing that really says New York to us now and is as much a symbol of the city as the Statue of Liberty, was the creation of its architects, Shreve, Lamb, and Harmon, and it had no precise precedent. It was an invented symbol, and it has served us and its city just fine. So the problem isn't the famous architects. It's the banal and unimaginative buildings designed by other architects, and the fact that the skylines of most cities are made up of too many mediocre buildings that are much too big. Of course we don't like them. I would venture to say that a lot of the complaints about cities looking all the same these days, complaints that, as I've said, I agree with to a large extent, nevertheless are really complaints about too much building, period. If those buildings were better and not all so big, I guarantee that people wouldn't hate them so much, no matter how many of them there were. The real problem for most people isn't that the buildings are the same from city to city. It is that there are too many buildings and that they are too big. Case in point, let's go back a little more than 100 years to the heyday of the Beaux-Arts in the United States, when architects were contorting classical temples into art museums, courthouses, libraries, city halls, and even, yes, skyscrapers. They were doing it in cities all across the country, and they weren't making the actual buildings all that different from city to city. Cleveland's skyline for years was defined mainly by the Terminal Tower, a late 1920s masterpiece with a classical top designed by the Chicago architects Graham, Anderson, Probst, and White, who more or less copied the crown of the municipal building by McKim, Mead, and White. Nobody complained that the buildings in those two cities were similar or too generic, They've always been so well-liked that it hardly seemed to matter. I don't think there were ever complaints that the Palace Hotel in San Francisco looked like it could have been built in Boston or New York, where its architects, Trowbridge and Livingston, did similar hotels. This was a time when scale, by and large, was reasonable, when very large buildings were the exception and not the rule, and when the natural order of things gave us cities that were more or less comfortable places, at least if you were not in the lowest 
rungs of the economic ladder and stuck in a tiny tenement apartment with a shared bathroom. The natural order of things did not give us housing for everyone that met minimum standards, and that did not happen until planners intervened with building codes and zoning laws. But 100 years ago, it did not take either building codes or zoning laws or the intervention of planners and urban designers to give us so many of the neighborhoods of San Francisco and Berkeley that we still cherish and admire, or Greenwich Village, or Beacon Hill, or Georgetown, the last three being places, by the way, that seemed to have just the right amount of individual identity, but which also shared a great deal from city to city. And it wasn't only attractive residential neighborhoods that were similar from city to city. You could say the same thing about the museums and courthouses and state capitals all over the country. They were widely accepted and admired, despite how similar they were from one place to the next. Yes, there was plenty of dissent from the likes of Louis Sullivan and Frank Lloyd Wright, who hated the Beaux-Arts and thought classicism was the scourge of the age, but that's another issue. Sullivan, for his part, built office towers in St. Louis and Buffalo that were sublime, but not, when you get right down to it, all that different from each other. He may have been a genius, but he was not always much for genius loci. And Wright, well, the Guggenheim Museum is one of the greatest things ever built in New York City, but you're on pretty thin ice if you try to say that Wright was reflecting the spirit of New York when he designed it. He was doing exactly the opposite. He was giving New York a new spirit that in time would become a key part of the city's identity. Most of those traditional architects were quite happy to jump from city to city, designing more or less similar buildings, just as Vitold Rybczynski accuses today's big names of doing. Henry Hobson Richardson was the starchitect par excellence of the 1880s, and Richardsonian Romanesque buildings in imitation of his style went up in every major city from Boston to San Francisco, not to mention Minneapolis, Dallas, Denver, and St. Louis. But you didn't hear anyone complain that those cities looked generic. McKim Eden White, based in New York, built magnificently in the late 19th and early 20th centuries in Boston, Chicago, Kansas City, Providence, Minneapolis, Washington, and even Rome. So you could call them the first global stars. But they weren't the only ones. Daniel Burnham, the Chicagoan who is celebrated for the Flatiron Building in New York and Union Station in Washington, D.C., also built Selfridge's Department Store in London. A wonderful, wonderful building, but one that, if truth be told, has nothing particularly British about it. But we can't deny, as I said before, that globalization has made things different in architecture as it has in everything. Daniel Burnham had to sail across the ocean to work on Selfridges, and his trips probably spanned weeks. He inevitably immersed himself in life in London and experienced it in a way that is totally different from an international architect of today who spends his or her life in constant motion. That same Burnham, one of our first architectural powerhouses, came to San Francisco 
1904, invited by the city's business leaders to design a plan. He and his wife stayed for two weeks, and as his biographer Thomas Hines tells us, he, and I quote, explored in great detail, talking, dining, and socializing with personal friends and with civic and association officials. He swam and fished in the ocean at Carmel, and he particularly enjoyed the exciting novelty of touring by automobile. He gave speeches and shared his initial ideas, then returned to his office in Chicago to think about the city for several more weeks, then requested that upon his return, he be provided with an office in a structure atop Twin Peaks so that he could be where the, and I quote from Burnham now, where the influence about me shall stimulate Golden Gate thoughts. Downtown, Burnham thought, would not do, since he needed a place where he could see and grasp the city's remarkable landscape in its entirety. Weeks and weeks of deep engagement and a desire to have a big picture of the city in front of him at all times. So what did Burnham produce the following year when his plan for San Francisco was finished? A plan whose most significant element was the Civic Center, the area at Market and Van Ness, where City Hall and other civic structures are clustered, and a place that I think all of us would agree is just about the least San Francisco-like part of the entire city whatever its other virtues. Burnham was trained in the Beaux-Arts, and he liked its grand classical buildings and formal axial boulevards. He proposed several wide diagonal avenues for San Francisco that, unlike the Civic Center, were never built. There's another irony to Daniel Burnham's involvement in San Francisco, which is that the element in the city that he most disliked and wished to obliterate, though he he knew he couldn't, was the city's street grid. It denied the special qualities of the city's great hills, Burnham thought, and he pretended that the city's magnificent, and rather, he believed the grid pretended that the city's magnificent topography did not exist. By rejecting the city's straight streets, even knowing he was stuck with most of them anyway, Burnham thought that he was proving how well he understood the city and how much his plan spoke to San Francisco's unique nature, how much it was not generic, in other words. But as all of you know, the relentlessness of the grid across San Francisco's striking topography is in in itself one of the key elements of the city's identity. It provides a kind of drama that exists nowhere else and makes real and powerful the juxtaposition of the man-made world and an unusual natural feature. Paradoxically, if the grid could have been made to disappear and Burnham's preferred plan for curving contoured roadways wrapping around the hills and gradually climbing up them had been brought into being, San Francisco might have felt less distinctive, not more distinctive. Sometimes, the best way to play to the character of a place is to do the conventional thing where it might be least expected. Still, Burnham's deep engagement with San Francisco and his sincere attempt to respond to its unique qualities, whether or not he succeeded, can't be doubted. And this could not be more different from how things work today, with architects flying in and flying out. Today, 
Burnham would have flown to San Francisco from his home in Chicago, been given a helicopter tour, and been back home in Chicago the next day, or maybe on to Singapore. And we all would have seen his proposals for San Francisco the moment they came out of his computer, unlike in 1905, when he presented his plan in the form of an elaborately printed book, drawings and models that were unveiled at a formal banquet at the St. Francis Hotel. Now, of course, designs are created quickly and distributed even more quickly. Everyone sees images of new buildings instantly on Instagram and Twitter and everywhere else. You hardly have to wait months or years to learn what is getting built. This means that if you are a real estate developer who wants to make a mark, you want the latest thing instantly. Architecture has never been immune from fashion, but it seems more tightly bound to trend today than ever before. I think it's important to say again that it's not just because of famous architects that too many buildings in too many cities look the same. The vast forces of globalization push relentlessly toward homogenization, and most cities are powerless to push back. On the rare occasions when they do push back successfully, it's often the celebrated architects who provide the best alternative to standard-issue commercial banality, who do the pushing back, so to speak. And if that comes in the form of somewhat similar buildings from city to city, we need to remember that this is not a new phenomenon. So am I saying, therefore, that generic is okay? That it is just something we learn to live with? No. Despite the fact that generic was not invented in our time, that doesn't make it desirable. I don't think that acknowledging the enormity of the forces of globalization and recognizing that they are too large for any city fully to resist, therefore means that we have to lie down and play dead before them. We want places to feel distinctive. Believing that you are in a place that is not entirely like other places is important not only for the places themselves, but for us. We receive a critical part of our identity from where we are, most importantly from where we live, but also from where we are even for brief periods. If every place looks and feels the same, then we are, to, agree, to a degree, perhaps more than we wish, also the same. Cities need to play to their strengths if they are to retain a sense of identity, which is to say that they need to recognize what it is that they have that makes them distinctive, even if all are not in a position to become quite as distinctive as San Francisco. Knowing what to do, of course, is another matter. As Daniel Burnham's miscalculation 110 years ago reminds us, it is possible to understand and respect the essence of a place and still come up with the wrong response to it. A more contemporary example might be up the coast in Vancouver, which, as you surely know, is an exceptionally pleasant city. It has a beautiful waterfront, expansive parks, appealing downtown neighborhoods, and jaw-dropping scenery. The breathtaking mountains are, by and large, protected from overdevelopment. The only thing the place lacks 
is architecture that you can remember for more than five minutes. The city's skyline, filled with gleaming new office towers and high-rise condominiums, is deadly dull. Vancouver does all the right things. Its planners really do understand urban design, and they know how to make streets and public places. They believe in density, and they believe in walkability, two critical elements for a city, and it's a joy to walk around downtown Vancouver, which is more than you can say for many cities. But why is it not an equal joy to look at the skyline? Why, in this place that is itself so distinctive, is the skyline so generic? If the lesson the San Francisco street grid teaches us is that it is sometimes necessary to be counterintuitive and to juxtapose the plainest and most conventional thing with an unconventional context, I think the lesson Vancouver offers is different. It is that you need architecture at least some of the time. If streets are more important than buildings to making a city work, and I absolutely believe that they are, architecture still matters, and something, somewhere, has to be memorable. Now, Vancouver has no risk of becoming truly generic. Its scenery, not to mention its benign climate, ever-present waterfront, and wonderful food will always save it from falling into the chasm of the ordinary. But most of the architecture of that city puts the majesty of the scenery to the test. When you have your back to the water and the mountains, you are no longer in a distinctive place. Creatively responding to what is distinctive about the culture or the physical setting of a city is the first way that a city can resist the push toward the generic. But as we've seen in both San Francisco and Vancouver, it is not always eager to figure out what that response should be. What goes hand in hand with these things is preservation, holding on to what you have, knowing it will become all the more precious as time goes on because it cannot be recreated. Historic preservation increasingly means neighborhoods, not single buildings, which often look forlorn, not to say ridiculous, when they are adrift in a city of utterly different things. We could spend an entire afternoon talking only about issues of historic preservation, so let me say here only that since we know it is becoming harder and harder to create places that are distinctive and that the natural order of things does not bring us to them, we have all the more obligation to protect those that have been handed down to us, to learn from them, yes, but less to preserve them like precious hothouse orchids and more to integrate them into modern life. And then, of course, a city needs to be willing to trust in architecture to help. It cannot save the day, but it can make an extraordinary difference. I am saying this not to give a free pass to famous architects, but to acknowledge that while making a coherent whole and making civilized, decent background buildings is the greatest mission of urban design, even the best urban fabric is not enough. We also need exciting special buildings that excite the emotions, those buildings that, as the critic and historian Lewis Mumford wrote, cause people to hold their breath for a stabbing moment 
or that restore them to equilibrium by offering them a prospect of space and form joyfully mastered. Yes, if you try to make an entire city of such buildings, the result is chaos. But that hardly means that we don't need some of them. One of the silliest aspects of the backlash against star architects is its implicit presumption that if you think that special, one-of-a-kind, distinctive buildings are good, then you must think that every building ought to be like that. And since every building should not be like that, then the logic goes, no building should be like that. No building should be exceptional. Nothing could be more ridiculous. Of course, Frank Gehry is not a model for anything except Frank Gehry, and his buildings work best when they have the chance to play off against the everyday buildings that make up the urban fabric. But we are in danger these days of losing our belief in special buildings, largely, I think, because we have asked too much of them. We've asked them to shoulder the entire burden of making cities, and they cannot and should not do that. When did believing in the urban fabric and believing in the ability to, of architecture to bring us special, exhilarating, intense moments become incompatible with each other? We have got to begin to believe in both of these things again. Every city needs to be a place in which the basic idea of urban fabric, of streets and public places and decent but not spectacular architecture forms the foundation. But if that is all we have, and if we lose our desire for great and special buildings that break out of all of this, then we have failed our cities just as much. The generic city is not only the place with identical glass towers and freeways and malls. It is also the place that stops caring about things that are different and no longer builds buildings that break the rules and make you feel that you are in a place that is like no place else. And that, the feeling of being in a special place, is one of the greatest gifts that any city can give us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you Thank very you. much. Thank you, Paul. Um, that was a wonderful lecture, and we will um, have some time for a few questions. We would ask people to keep their questions relatively brief so that everybody can have a chance. Um, and I will just put the microphone here, and please ask your questions at the mic. I hope we didn't answer every possible question in this room. I'll take a quick stab. Sure. You're talking about, you, you mentioned mediocre architecture, and not that you need to go on. I think we know what you're talking about. But what about the term vernacular architecture? Could you talk about that sure. a little bit? That's a good, uh, that's actually uh, a word that I could have and should have probably woven into this somewhere. The term vernacular architecture. Uh, which is, you know, the sort of meaning the common everyday language. Um, what I was saying, even though I wasn't 
clever enough to put it in exactly these words, was that, in fact, we lack a good vernacular today. And other periods had it. I mean, the great failure of modern architecture is not an inability to make great buildings. It makes plenty of them. It has never made a successful vernacular. Um, we, you know, if, you, if you look at uh, the Victorian architecture of San Francisco, the brownstones of New York, the Georgian architecture of London, uh, even the most ordinary buildings in that vernacular were wonderful, and they made a civilized and beautiful city together. Um, we have not been able to create a modern equivalent of that. Um, so I think that, in many ways, is our greatest problem, and I think it is also one of the reasons that the preservation movement um, grew as large and as important a factor as it is in the sort of culture of building, let's say. Um, I mean, the deep, dark secret is how much preservation is motivated not by love of what is being saved, but by fear of what might replace it. In fact, I mean, that's... Uh, so, uh, anyway. Yes, sir? You, you talked about buildings that are too big. Could you expand on that concept? About buildings that are too big. Um, I did talk about buildings that are too big. Um, I did not mean by that to suggest that there is not a place for very, very large buildings, um, but only that the average new building, that so much that is being built today is so big uh, that we have, we have seen a significant change in scale in our cities, and that that is an enormous challenge. Um, I, I actually love skyscrapers. I wrote a book about them. I love tall buildings. I, some of my very favorite things in the world are very, very tall, very, very large buildings. I am not, uh, that was not a cover for um, everything should be six stories high. Uh, I was not saying that at all. But there is a, a sense of balance in a city, and we have lost that in so many of our downtowns now. That's, that, that's all I meant to say by that point. So I actually had a question along a similar line, which is you, you were mentioning that there were, and there certainly are, uh, cities full of buildings that you felt are too big and too many and often too much the same. Mm -hmm. But what I was wondering is what the alternative was. So I presume the alternative is having an enormous number of smaller buildings. And I wonder whether it could be hard to have much distinctiveness if you had that many smaller buildings or whether, you know, well, when you have the investment what? in a big building, you ha can get right. the Stark attack to build something distinctive. Right. Um, you know, San Francisco, I don't, I, I, I don't mean to sort of make this all that local a, a talk, and yet, on the other hand, I do have to go back to think about how six, reasonably successful San Francisco has been in creating uh, a sort of urban vernacular of small to medium-sized urban buildings in downtown, many of which are really extremely decent, some of which are more than that, and in which modern architecture does begin to have a certain degree of, of life and vibrancy to it and yet still be quite urbane. Um, 
in general. I think you do, though, make a better city with more dense, lower buildings. I mean, look at Paris, for example. Not, not that we're going to ever remake our cities that way, but uh, it's awfully nice when it happens. But, of course, that alone is not enough either, because if you look at much of Washington, D.C., it is also, you know, eight-story buildings built out to the street, and it's pretty dreary, most of it. And so, uh, and, I mean, who, who, would, who would rather walk, who wouldn't rather walk in Paris than Washington, D.C.? So there are many, many other factors that come into play here. Um, I'm going to talk actually about Paris and San Francisco some more tomorrow as well. Yeah, Dick. So when I was young in San Francisco, we've referred to our two iconic banks as one was the Bank of Italy, right, and the other, of course, was Wells Fargo. So a couple weeks ago, I was in Charlotte, North Carolina, and someone proudly pointed out that the hometown banks were Wells Fargo and Bank of America that now uh, dominates. And it got me thinking about wherever I go, I have this present. We all have this presence of enormous wealth that's being moved around, and it's one more way that the because wealth dictates a lot of the buildings that go in, sure. um, and, and how this is shaping this homogenization of everything around us. So I just want to maybe reflect on what you just said and think about it a little more, if you would. Sure. Um, actually, tomorrow I'm going to talk a certain amount about um, the, uh, the sort of massive movement of global capital creating these sort of huge things that seem to really be commodity investments more than buildings often uh, and, what, and what it means. Um, the, uh, the fact that the Bank of America, which was once the Bank of Italy in San Francisco and is now the Bank of America in Charlotte and Wells Fargo, uh, is in fact as good a reminder as you can about the the fact that all of this is about the movement of global capital and the cities are just uh, the byproduct and sometimes the waste product of, of that whole process. Um, and other, although, you know, of course, it, it has things that make life easier for us as well as things that make us hard. You know, I mean, I bank at Chase in New York and when I landed at the airport, there was the Chase machine just like the one in New York, and how did we ever live without these things? You know, so that it, it uh, there are so many ways in which this uh, technology and culture benefits us as well as challenges us. But um, you know, it is so often the same people uh, building the same things with the same money and the same architects for the same tenants in different places. That um, in some ways I wonder, you know, why, why are we surprised that things are coming out the same? Um, but all of that said, I think it's important to reflect on the point that I made about 19th and early 20th century buildings, which was that we were building a lot of similar things all over the place then too. And we were not so unhappy about it. Um, so um, the, the notion that architecture 
that architects and builders do similar things at similar times in different places is not new to our time. Um, but what is new to our time, I think, is a weakening of a local culture uh, brought about in part by the homogenization of global culture and technology um, that makes the places themselves less able to assert an identity, less able to create an identity in the first place. Um, then they were, and, you know, we'll, we'll, we will see how all this plays out, but I'm, I'm not encouraged about that. I'm, 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 I'm encouraged about a lot of individual works of architecture and not encouraged about our ability to um, make places remain distinctive. Um, so, anyway, yes, sir. Hi, uh, thank you. Um, you framed your praise for localism with praise for walkability. And right. um, this little city has a, a history of innovation, both culturally and architecturally, to the point where Berkeley is kind of a, a shorthand for things. And you were kind enough to mention Maybeck's legacy. I, I, I would predict that if you come back here in 10 years, this city will be unrecognizably homogenized by a lot of major development um, that's being greenwashed with um, appeals to things like walkability and livability. And um, it all seems to be inspired by somewhere else, by um, places like um, one-word stereotypes like Portlandia or Park Slope. None of it's really rooted here. And um, I get around by bicycle. I'm wearing bicycle clips just to frame this. But does, does every place have to be walkable? Does every place... Uh, is there a dark side to... Uh, to a, to a good to a, to a, to a good uh, movement. Thanks. Now there's a that, there's a great wonderfully perverse question. Does every <laughs> does every place have to be walkable? I think that's a very fair question to raise. Um, I mean, first I would say we are in very little danger of every place being walkable. So you know, we should only be lucky enough for that to be the real issue and the real problem. Um, I. I mean, every place is simply never going to be walkable. But what I do see happening, uh, and I think this is to the good, is a greater respect for the values that are inherent in uh, that word walkability and to see it existing in sort of nodal ways in lots of places that are, in a larger sense, in a macro sense, not walkable. Los Angeles is probably the best example of that. Um, I mean, there are more neighborhoods today in Los Angeles that have a street life and are walkable than there used to be, in part, and here's the law of unintended consequences, in part because traffic on the freeways has gotten so utterly unbearable that it was too much trouble to go across. I remember when I first went to Los Angeles many, many years ago, you know, you, you would think nothing of zipping from Malibu to downtown and then back to Santa Monica and then to Hollywood and so forth all within a day. Well, it would take you a week to do that now. So, so in fact, the unexpected consequence of that is that more neighborhoods now have good restaurants, good shopping, attractive streets, um, cultural facilities, and so forth, and the city is actually a set of nodes, many of which on a small scale for certain everyday functions function walkably, 
but then there's the, the, the overlay of the macro city that people deal with in a different way. Um, that's not a terrible adaptation of a model. I mean, it's a model that um, I, we would not want to create that way from scratch now, but it's evolved in, a, in an interesting way. Um, does every place have to look like Portland? I hope not. Um, I mean, I think Portland is a lovely place, but it would be a shame if everything sort of really did become like that. Um, and, you know, Park Slope too. I mean, I, but I think that, you know, what you, what you make fun of in Park Slope is kind of the culture of it more than the physical fact of the place, uh, which is, and here's a good, another interesting thing about a lot of traditional cities, I mean, Park Slope as a physical fabric of brownstones, a park, um, some, a few special buildings, uh, but a larger fabric dominating everything, and then a couple of nice commercial streets, is a model for almost any kind of life, and it works really well. It doesn't require, you know, the the silliness of the Park Slope food cooperative or whatever all that stuff is that people make fun of there to exist. A different kind of life could also exist very fruitfully there. So um, I think it's also important not to... It's imp while we must never fail to give proper credence to physical form and its impact on life and culture, I think it's also a mistake to believe that it determines all. Because sometimes they just coexist without having quite as much of a uh, cause and effect relationship on each other. Yes, sir. So one of the uh, great and, and probably justified criticisms of the star architects of the last generation was their complete, uh, the way in which they ignored the street context and people, you know, the, the big empty plaza and all that. Do you think the new generation of architects that you talked about, the star architects who are going around the world, are they still creating sculptures and you know, in situ, or are they focusing more on the life around them? Well, I don't think uh, that a sort of building that's a significant and assertive piece of sculpture necessarily is anti-urban and avoids the street. Some do, some don't. Um, I've seen plenty uh, that are, in fact, quite sophisticated and subtle from an urbanistic standpoint. It all depends on the circumstances and who's doing it and a million other things. But yes, I see much more consciousness of that today and much less um, comfort with either breaking away from the street or if you are making a public space with making it um, cold and unsociable let's say, for want of a better term. I mean, I think the, uh, the work of William H. White, who I actually referred to early in the talk, was critical, and I think that has sort of been pretty much absorbed into the culture. Um, I was going through the new Whitney Museum in New York the other day and um, talking to the director, and he was talking to me about this little sort of mini piazza that is at the front of it, um, between where you get off the High Line Park and go into the museum. And he was saying, oh, you know, we're 
uh, he said, I'm sorry you're seeing it today because the chairs haven't arrived. We've ordered all these chairs like they have in the Tuileries in Paris, these little light chairs that people can move around any way they want. Um, and he didn't even say, oh, you know, we've done this radical thing. He just sort of mentioned that as if that's what people do now. So I think that, that we have learned a lot. It doesn't mean we do everything right, but we, I think, have learned more about uh, public space than we had before. And architects, when they are doing large-scale major projects, I think don't try to uh, convince the world that an acre of travertine is, the, is in everybody's best interest. Yes, yes sir. Um, in as much as you are speaking of the effect of uh, good architecture and creating a sense of uh, uniqueness of a city, I'm surprised you haven't mentioned Gaudi and Barcelona. Nothing could be more a perfect example. Uh, Gaudi, and uh, I'm an architect, but and we, we toured that spent days looking at Gaudi stuff. Pure genius. I thought Frank Lloyd Wright was the tops, but Gaudi is my man now. <laughs> and the other person is Calatrava, very imaginative. And unlike Frank Gehry, who I don't have much respect for, we did see Balboa, very, very good. Everything else seems hit and run, where he does his shtick and just sticks his wild stuff on but the planning of the building itself is not good. Well, I would, I would agree with you completely about Gaudi, and yes, I could certainly have mentioned him. I, I, um, I didn't think so, but I didn't think to do so, but, and the talk was a little long as it was, but you're absolutely right. I, it, it is completely consistent with the points I was trying to make, and, um, and I mean... There are actually many reasons why uh, Barcelona is an extraordinary and distinctive city. Uh, Gaudi is the most important, but also the plan with those chamfered corners of that whole section. There, there are many things about it that are amazing, of which Gaudi, as I said, is the most, the most eminent. Um, I don't agree with you about Frank Gehry, but that's a longer story for another time. Um, and I think Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles in particular isn't an extraordinary and beautifully planned and eminently successful public building, um, particularly on the inside. Um, but, you know, that, that, that will be another, another conversation for another time. Uh, anyway, yes, sir. Thank you very much. I, en- I really enjoyed your talk. Thank I you. Had, was fulfilled and had no questions. And then your soliloquy here um, in the question answer period discussing the flow of cap, massive flows of capital, basically, you know, Christopher Leinberger's argument, 17 uh, standard product types, because that's what's financeable every day. Um, in some ways, anticipating your talk today, the generic city, I thought that was going to be the punchline. Can you tell me why you didn't mention that in today's talk? Why, why, why I didn't, why you didn't mention what's financeable? Well, yeah, the, the fact that what's financing the generic city is, is the a sort of development mechanism which is standard across the U.S. and now globally. I, I sort of took that almost as implicit, that's why. I mean, I don't you, disagree you, with you. Yeah, you were very explicit afterwards, and I agree right, with right, you. Right, right, right. And I, I probably, I mean, I'm Al, uh, I hope I get a chance to do some version of this talk somewhere else because all of you are very good editors, and you're actually, <laughs> you've given me several points to sort of add in. 
And in fact, that's an, you're right. I think I probably should not have made that implicit. I should have made it explicit because it is absolutely right that um, you know the the uh, the forces of finance play a far greater role in shaping cities than architects do. However, that said, the nature of what is financeable has evolved and changed. And there was a time not all that long ago when, you know, a strange building by Zaha Hadid, Norman Foster, Jean Nouvel, Frank Gehry even, was utterly unfinanceable, you know. Frank Gehry is now doing, you know, condo towers for the related group, the New York developer, and has done other things. So that you, we have also watched some evolution in that world. It, it lags, obviously, architectural creativity by quite a bit, but it has, it has been affected by architecture as much as it has affected architecture in the last few years. And I think that, that in itself is a fascinating phenomenon which could be a talk in itself as well. In fact, I'm going to talk, as I said, a little bit more about all this tomorrow uh, in another, another context. Anyway, thank you all very much again. Yes, please join me in thanking Paul Goldberger. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.